Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 29. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Mark chapter 14, verses 66 to 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she has said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round them, This fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Thanks, Thanks, Chantal. Tim is going to come and speak and I'm going to pray. Father, we thank you for these passages. We thank you for Tim, and we pray, come and speak to us now through these scriptures. Be with Tim and fill him with your Holy Spirit so he might speak with conviction and power. And be with us, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might have ears that hear and listen and apply and take heart uh, what these uh, truths are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Chantel. Um, Yep, my name is Tim. (laughs) And I'm looking out at a lot of 
unfamiliar faces, which is really awkward because I need to start off today with a very humiliating story about me. And for those who know me, it's not so humiliating because I think they know enough about me that it's going to be fine. But for those that don't, I run the risk of being forever known as, as this guy, which you'll hear in a minute. So, actually, it's embarrassing for me, but it's also embarrassing potentially for somebody else in the church. So just keep yourself all on your toes for a moment. The story that I'm going to tell you, and I was thinking back all the humiliation in my life, there's a lot of stories to choose from, but this one's a bit of a doozy. A couple of years ago, Steve, the pastor, invited me to a Christian conference over in England. And it was very closely located to your parents' house. And the conference um, <laughs> was a bit of a failure for me, but that's actually not the, the part of the story. But uh, a lovely part of the story was we got to stay at Steve's parents' house. And um, Steve kindly gave me one of the rooms, and I went to bed that night, no problems. And I remember waking up, three in the morning, and it was so strange. I bolted up out of bed, and there was a couple seconds where I thought, why have I woken up? And uh, the, there was no temperature, there was no sudden noise. Then I felt, and this isn't even the embarrassing part, this first part, I felt my stomach lurch, and I realized why I had woken up. I sprinted to the toilet, and I had, which cannot be described as anything else, as a bout of diarrhea, okay? <laughs> that is the reality. And, there, you know, it happens to the best of us. Sometimes it happens to the best of us in your pastor's parents' house. So, we all know. So, after you have, and I know there's a medical ceremony after this or whatever, or, or a medical seminar after this, if you... If you um, lose a lot of liquids through a variety of means, you must replenish. So I knew this. I knew this. So I started to go downstairs, three in the morning, and I got about two-thirds of the way down the stairs. And <laughs> you guessed it, I felt this lurch. Now, I had a crucial decision. Go back upstairs to the toilet I have been to and know exists, or from my memory, find the closer downstairs toilet. And uh, time or diarrhea waits for no man, apparently. And uh, those couple seconds were very crucial. I did decide to go to the downstairs toilet. Like I said, I think I would have made it, but it was those couple seconds. I genuinely was in the stairs kind of going, ah, I just don't know which way to go. I made it to the downstairs toilet. Unfortunately, like I said, it, 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 <laughs> I made it to the bathroom. I didn't make it to the toilet. So we now have... A big issue. Uh, I am 3 a.m. in Steve's parents' house, uh, standing there in my right hand with soiled boxers and nothing else, and I'm going, uh-oh, I really hope nobody's getting up in the middle of the night here. I also didn't know what to do with the evidence. All I can say, and I will end on this, is thank goodness for Ziploc sandwich bags, which I found in the kitchen, because they have a multiple of uses. So. Like I say, there is a risk for those who know me, for those who don't. I don't want to be known as the Ziploc guy or Diarrhea Dan or something, you know? It's humiliating to share that story with you. It really is. Because <laughs> there's nothing good about that. There's nothing strong, powerful, and standing up here telling you about that. That is a humiliating story. And I share that with you right at the start because I wanted to illustrate to you that this is actually nothing in comparison to the humility of Peter. The, the account we get of Peter and the events leading up to and including his denial are only possible because of his humility. Mark, which we've been reading out of um, for the last few weeks, 
was Peter's scribe. So he wrote down everything that Peter told him. And the reality is, we wouldn't have this vivid and intimate account of Peter's night and his complete and utter betrayal and failure of Jesus if he hadn't been willing to share it with him. He was humble enough to go, like I've been, to, to knowing that there's a risk. Everyone here might have a different view of me. Like I say, hopefully not. But you might, because Peter was humble to tell Mark everything that happened. If we look at that courtyard scene, there was no one else was there. We, have no, we wouldn't know what actually happened, apart from if Peter had had the humility to tell Mark exactly what happened. Okay? So that's, I just wanted to illustrate that. We have to get that right off the bat. Peter was humble enough to tell us his failures, and his failures are pretty intense. As we've heard earlier, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. He says, you will all fall away. But Peter boasts. He says, even if everyone else does it, I won't. And Jesus responds, you will. You will disown me three times. And it goes from bad to worse for Peter as the night unfolds, leading up to his denial and disowning of Jesus. We find out a number of things. We find out that he falls asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that was a couple of weeks ago. And it says that he wasn't even able to stay awake in Jesus in some of his toughest times of his life for one hour. And Jesus rebukes him for this, okay? He, he couldn't even stay awake with Jesus for one hour. We find out again. When Jesus is arrested, it is Peter that takes out his sword strikes the high priest servant with his sword and cuts off his ear, okay? And again, Jesus rebukes him and says, am I not to make, to, you know, meant to take the cup that my father has given me? In verse 50, we learn that all desert and flee, free, flee from Jesus. What an empty boast from Peter. He said, even if everyone else does it, I will not do it. And yet we find out a few verses later, all desert and flee Jesus, including Peter. This is turning out to be quite the night for Peter, um, even worse than mine um, in that sense. It really is a disaster. We learn a couple of verses later that Peter follows the arrested Jesus at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest where Peter will deny and disown Jesus. The scene is set for Peter's, Peter's betrayal. Jesus is upstairs being interrogated by the Jewish court and the high priest while Peter is down in the courtyard warming himself by the fire. And I was thinking about this word betrayal. Betrayal is tough. Betrayal is shocking. It, it hurts us to our very core. And I've seen, and I've, I've felt this a couple of times. I had a friend, when I first moved to Dublin, I had a friend, and he was a really good friend of mine, same age as me, um, met him from Dublin. I was working for this organization. And what happened was stuff started going missing in this organization. There was a little bit of money here and there, headphones, all these different things started going missing. And this was a personal friend of mine, and I got stolen from, and, and that, you know, money's money. And this went on for about six months. Quite a lot of money was taken, quite a lot of different people's possessions. And eventually this guy, my friend, was caught red-handed, um, stealing, stealing from us all. And I actually remember being told, you know, we'd, we'd found the thief or whatever, because we were all scratching our head trying to work out who this could be, who had access, who was doing all this. And I remember just bursting into tears when I heard the news because I was betrayed. I was so distraught. I was so devastated by a friend, somebody that I'd welcomed into my home, somebody that I trusted, somebody that if I ever felt that they needed money, they would know how to ask, would, you know, somebody, genuine friend. And I know that feeling of betrayal, and I know how devastated I was 
I, I was just, I was heartbroken. Betrayal is tough. In another job, I worked um, with young men in prison. And my job was to work with them in the prison and then to follow them into the community. And I worked with two lads um, that had grown up together in um, residential homes, juvenile detention centers, and now prison. But they were literally thick as thieves. They, were, they had an amazing friendship to the point that I'd be out with one of them and we'd get a phone call and it'd be his mate who's inside in prison going, oh, I'm in the courtyard now. Can you deliver that care package to me? So I'll let you guess what was in that care package. And they were loyal to each other. When one was inside, the other one was flinging packages of drugs into him. When one was, um, you know, back outside, they were meeting up and they were great friends. And I met up with one of them just before I finished that job. And I said to him, oh, how's the other lad getting on? And he said, he betrayed me. He, 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 he sold something on him. He, he'd given him the lend of a car and, and he sold it for cheap money. And I was heartbroken. I genuinely was. This was a loyal friendship. This was a genuine friendship that I had seen. And they had built it up through years of hardship, through years of going in and out of residential homes, in and out of prison. And they had built such a loyal friendship. And then one of them took advantage of it. And I was heartbroken for them. And I was genuinely upset. I was devastated. Betrayal is tough. It's heartbreaking. It's, it really rocks us. And the reality is, Peter disowns and betrays Jesus, his friend. As he's warming himself by the fire, outside the high priest's house, a servant girl, as we've heard, comes up to him and states, you were with Jesus. But Peter denies it. It then says that he moves away, so he tries to get away from him. And we all know that when we're asked awkward questions by somebody that's bothering us, somebody that's looking for an answer that we don't want to give them, we move away. And he moves away from her, but she follows him, and she states again, surely you are one of them. You are, you know, you are a follower of Jesus. And again, Peter denies it. Suddenly others, I guess, have, have seen a bit of this commotion, and they're interested, and they come up to him and state, surely you are one of them. You are Galilean. They recognize him by his accent. And for me, again, in, in the job I used to work, uh, working with young men in prison, I uh, worked with two brothers in the north inner city, and I got on particularly well with the older brother. And uh, he, 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 he was telling me, my younger brother's always getting into trouble with the guards, uh, always getting picked out of a crowd, always getting nailed on this and that. And I was like, okay, why is that? And he said, I'll show you. So we got in the car, and we drove around the north inner city. And if you've ever been in the north inner city, sometimes when I was waiting for these boys, this is how bad some of the places we were in, people would knock on my window, I'd put the window down, and they'd be offering me drugs. You know, so north inner city, riddled with drugs, full of a lot of criminality and different things. And he brought me around the corner, and there was about eight lads standing on the corner. And they were all almost uniform, Nike Air Max, Nike uh, tracksuits, the, the raincoat, blue raincoat, regatta, north face, and they had their hoods up. And he said to me, which one of those is my brother? And I knew immediately because his brother, and I kid you not, had what can only be described as almost bulletproof glasses. He had the thickest lens of anybody I've ever seen. So when you drive past these eight lads, you can't pick out any of them but this one guy. His glasses are so thick that they, you know, you just can't miss him. So when he's everyone in the crowd, they're all wearing the same thing, it's dimly lit, Every single time, you know exactly where his younger brother is. So no matter what the trouble that was going down in that area, the police didn't know half the time who was there, but they always knew that he was involved, so he was the one always getting in trouble. And it was the same with Peter. 
His accent gave him away. He stood out in the crowd. He had a Galilean accent. You know, we, we'd all know if a, a corkman was in our midst or whatever. The accent gave him away. He stood out in a crowd. And so they come to him and they accuse him. And they say, you surely are one of them. Your accent gives you away. But the first two times, Peter denies being identified with Jesus. And that's bad enough. This third time, when he's been recognized by his accent, when he's been recognized by the crowd, he denies even knowing Jesus himself. And he says, I don't know the man that you're talking about. And he calls curses down upon himself. But that is a blatant lie. Peter knows very clearly who Jesus is. We heard it earlier. In Mark 8, he declares Jesus is Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And yet here he is, denying that he even knows who Jesus is. What a complete and utter lie. What a complete and utter betrayal. He knew who Jesus was. First two times he denied being identified with him. Third time he denied even knowing who he was. He, dis he disowned Jesus. And what a missed opportunity to declare three times, I am a proud follower of the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Christ, my friend Jesus. What a missed opportunity. He had three bites of the cherry, and each time he went worse and worse and worse and worse. And I think when we're reading this story, I know I was challenged by it, because any sympathy we extend to Peter is only because we recognize this denial, disowning of Jesus in our own lives. And that's the reality. I, 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 you know, you do kind of think, oh, but he was the only one to follow him into the courtyard. You know, he was the only one, you know, maybe he didn't do so bad. But no, we can't mistake the fact that he disowned and betrayed his friend, his savior, Jesus. And any sympathy we extend to him is only because we recognize the same ability in ourselves. I know for me how often I betray Jesus. A lot more than I'd like for all of you to know. Um, by refusing to spend precious time with him, denying myself time in genuine prayer or praying over his word, I lose the intimacy with Jesus. The seeds have been sown and they are reaped then in how I interact with others, whether that be in work, at home, with my family or friends. And this is a tough sentence for me to say, but I've got this written down. For me, work is the place where I most often betray Jesus. That's a horrific sentence to have to read out. I can name this is the place where I most often betray Jesus. That's the reality. I know that. And that is a tough sentence to read because it's not good enough, but it is true. It's a tough sentence to say. Um, as an example, I was up here a couple of weeks ago and... Um, I was being asked to plug the weekend away. And I had to explain to you, and I did. I had to go into work and get my shift changed because I was meant to work that Saturday, Saturday the 11th. And when I asked for the time off at work, I just said I was going to be down in Athlone. And that's not a lie, but it's not the full truth. I didn't take that opportunity to declare. I'm not, I can't work next Saturday because I'm going away on a weekend away with my church family, which I can't wait for. And the reality is that seems trivial, trivial and it is in some senses, but if I'm not willing to make those conversations, those steps then, am I going to make the big conversations work and work? Sorry, that's a confusing sentence, but am I going to, if, 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 I, if I get it wrong in this trivial example, trivial example, how likely am I to stand up for Jesus in a big way, in a big conversation, in a big topic? I've, the seeds have been sown. I took that choice to go, I'm an athlone. I, I betrayed Jesus in that moment. I, I, I didn't want to explain why I wasn't there. I, I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible with a yes or no and, and would have worked with it. So that is the reality. For me, I really struggle in work. 
For me, and the reason I struggle is because I fear not being accepted. I fear being an outsider. My idol, and I suspect for a lot of us, is being accepted. You know, I've given the example of work. It could be college. It could be at home. It could be with friends. It could be with family. It could be anywhere. I don't know where it is. But for me, I know that my idol is being accepted. I fear being left outside. outside. I fear not being accepted. So what is the answer? How do I combat that? How do we combat this? Because this is such an important thing. And I guess the answer lies in how Jesus, after his resurrection, responds to Peter after Peter's denial of him. This is uh, detailed, as we heard earlier, in John chapter 21. Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you truly love me? Do you truly love me? Do you love me? And it says the third time Peter was hurt and he replied, you know everything. You know I love you. In many ways, this is the hardest question. Do you love me? It's, it's four words, but they're incredibly powerful four words. Um, as I've shared with some of you, um, over the last few months, um, I'm a youth worker. There is one child that I work with who has had my heart broken. My job is to help children who are at risk of being brought into the care of the state uh, for that not to happen and for them to remain in their current placement, whether that be with immediate family, with uh, grandmother, family, friends, or in foster care. Okay, so that's my job. I'm brought in to stop this placement breaking down and then being brought into a group home, into the residential, into the care of the state. And this particular youth um, was brought to me a couple of months ago after having been badly beaten by a member of his family. And I was... <laughs> poor Lindsay had to console me last time, so she's, she's on duty again. And I was so moved when I saw him. I was distraught. I really was. And I have something to share with you that I wrote in response to this because I was so moved. I was so distraught. I just... I couldn't, I couldn't, at that moment I couldn't express how upset I was. But I wrote this when I saw him, or after I saw him, because I had to process my emotions, because it's a child that I'd worked so hard to protect, worked so hard to care for, and to see somebody you love hit and hurt, especially when it's a child, is very, very tough. And I can hear it in my uh, voice. Um, so I wrote this. This was my way of processing and my way of expressing my emotions. I saw the story of your life written across your bruised and battered face, a life too full of chaos and violence and too starved of love and gentle embrace. I saw a little boy too weary to even be afraid, a child whose only consistency is that he will be betrayed. I, I saw a child who knows rejection and is forced every day to fight, a boy who doesn't know unconditional acceptance or where he will spend the night. I saw a child abandoned down a lonely path no child should ever have to take. A boy whose childhood has been stolen, forced to make decisions no child should ever make. And I guess you can hear it in me. If that child was to ask me, Tim, do you love me? I could answer yes, emphatically so. And I have such evidence. Those words I've written out to you, that, that shows an intimacy and a love and a care for a child that's not mine. I have receipts of my money above and beyond work that I have spent on him. The prayers, the people I've asked to pray for him, the tears, 
the time and above my contract and answers, I could look him in the face and say, yes, I love you. I could. It's a hard question. But when Jesus asked me that question, the evidence isn't as compelling. I, I have such confidence that if that child was to ask me that question, I could prove that I did. I do. But when Jesus asked me that question, that evidence isn't as compelling, and I'm nowhere near as confident. And um, For me, you know, or, or the gospel can be kind of simplified into three strands, or, or very simply, this is a really handy way for me to move forward in, in different things. It says, to know Jesus as friend, to trust him as savior, and to obey him as Lord. And if we look at the last two, to trust him as savior and to obey him as Lord, then whilst by no means these are great for me, they're definitely easier for me to grasp. And those who know my, my personal story well will know that I have made sacrifices to honor God and to obey what I believe he is asking of me. Truly, I have done what I can to obey him in very difficult circumstances to go, this is what I think my Lord is asking of me to stay faithful to him in this area, and I've done that. And I trust Jesus as my Savior. I've tried everything else. There is nothing else that I would want to put my trust in. And that's the reality, and I can stand over that. I, I do. I, I have tried my best. Not saying that I don't fail all the time, but I try my best to obey him as Lord. I trust him as my Savior. I'm not saying that there isn't times when I'm tempted to put my trust in other stuff, but having tasted everything that there is, I know that I trust Jesus, and there's nothing else I'd rather trust. But <laughs> to know Jesus as friend, for me, is the hardest. And I recognize that's maybe not the same for everyone. But for me, of all those different strands, that is the toughest one for me. I worked for a year and a half for a Christian charity. And I now know, looking back at it, how earnestly I worked there. The endless messages I preached, the countless prayer meetings, the desire to do what I felt God wanted me to do. And yet, I'm shocked when I look back at that time, the spiritual dryness. I, I never car carved any time to be with Jesus. In fact, now that I've looked back at it, I know that I was never further from Jesus than in that 18 months working for a Christian charity where it just became a duty. It just became obeying and trusting, and there was no friendship. There was no intimacy. There was no care. There was no... I was less intimate. I was less in love with Jesus than during my, in that time than at any time in my life since I've been a Christian. That is the reality. Looking back at it, I, I had just, I just lost that friendship, I lost that love, I lost that intimacy, and it became a duty, and it became a trust, but I didn't know Jesus as a friend, I didn't spend time with him, I didn't carve time out with him, I didn't have those conversations, I didn't have that intimacy, I just, I just didn't. So, do you love me, Tim? If Jesus asked this question, it is very difficult for me to answer, because the evidence isn't nearly as compelling as I would like it to be, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. I know how often I've been embarrassed by Jesus, of my faith, and where in pursuing my idol of being accepted, I've denied Jesus, I've disowned him. I've willingly chosen the pleasure of sin over delighting in Jesus. I've refused to reconcile myself with Jesus because he gets in the way of my sinning. I know that I've done that. I know that I've done that countless times. I, if it was put up on a counter, it would be shockingly high. I know that I've been embarrassed of Jesus as a Christian. I have chosen the fleeting acceptance of people I barely know over the love and embrace of my Savior Jesus, of my friend Jesus. That's the reality. Thankfully, if I was to flip the question and said to Jesus, do you love me? 
then the answer would be an emphatic yes, far greater than anything that I can say that I love that child. Those tattered receipts, those few words of poetry, um, whilst to me they look like overwhelming evidence, compared to what the evidence Jesus has to me, it doesn't even begin to match up. Or anyone, that's a child that, you know, I have no biological connection to. Some of your parents or whatever else, however much you think you love your spouse or your, your child or whatever it is, it's nothing in comparison to the love Jesus has for us. And there is overwhelming and indisputable evidence. And it's the evidence of the cross. Jesus loves us so much that he died for us. He died for us. Um, He took our place. He died for wretched, sinful, betraying, fearful, denying him. That is the reality. That is his evidence. It's it's unbelievable grace. It's what incredible undeserved grace and what overwhelming, indisputable evidence. It, it, it beats, you know, those <clears throat> receipts, everything. It hands down. So if I flip that question, Jesus, do you love me? I get such an overwhelming answer. Such a powerful, overwhelming, incredible answer of pure love. So how do we respond to the idol of being accepted? It's actually, thankfully, quite simple. By turning to the one who truly accepts us, Jesus. I can say, I love you, Jesus, because you know everything. And I mean everything. Every time I've denied you, every time I've disowned you, every time I've betrayed you, every time I've chosen sin over you, every time I've been embarrassed of you, every time I haven't said the right things in work with my friends, family, and yet you still love me. I love you, Jesus, because you know everything, and yet you still love me. What can I do but love you back? That is my honest answer. I I don't have anywhere else to turn. No one else, if I had done the amount of betrayal, like I said, I've actually never seen that young man that I lost friendship with um, over stealing from us. That's the reality. He stole from me. I was betrayed. I was hurt. And I'm not saying that I wouldn't have grace for him, but he, he actually chose to reject grace. But I've, I, that's not a friend of mine. I, if I saw him in the street, I might nod. I don't know. But that's the reality. You know, he has done one bad thing to me, and that relationship is, is cut. And that is the reality. Whereas I have done countless, unbelievable, unspeakable betrayals and disowning of Jesus And yet he still loves me. He knows everything that I've done. And what can I do but love him back? How do we respond to this idol of being accepted, this fear of being left out, this fear of not being cool, not being all of these different things by turning to the one who truly accepts us? If we have lost our intimacy with God, it is because we have moved away, not God. Jesus is always willing to gently restore us, to forgive us and embrace us once again. We are already loved, embraced, and known. And that's such a powerful thing to take on board. And I really struggle with that. And sometimes you get into this cycle of, I haven't sinned for a couple of days. I'm really good with God. And then as soon as you sin, you crash right down to there. And then you just try and do this, you know, this pendulum swing between pride and guilt. Pride and guilt. And that's just not how it works. And it's exhausting. If we've lost our intimacy with God, it's because we've moved away. God is there waiting for us, asking us this question. Scott Souls in his book, Befriends, put it like this, and we're, we're nearly finished. 
He says this, and I think this beautifully sums up what, what I'm trying to say. He says, Jesus sees us. He really sees us in our strivings to be faithful, in our efforts to make a meaningful contribution to his kingdom. Kingdom. He sees how hardworking we can be, how devoted, how enduring, and how faithful we are in our efforts. He sees us walking side by side with him. But when we walk with him only side by side and not face to face, it's just a matter of time before we turn ourselves back to back with Jesus. And I know what that's like. I know what it's like working in that charity in my own personal faith to, to oh, but I'm so on fire for you, God. I've done this, 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 this. And it's just become a duty. It's become obedience. There's no love. There's no time with Jesus. Instead, and Scott Souls continues, we need to be face to face with Jesus. Uh, we touched on that right at the very, very start with our first reading. For when you are face to face with love himself, you become more loving. When you are face to face with kindness himself, you become more kind. When you are face to face with generosity himself, you become more generous. It's how Jesus works. He rubs off on us. We need to spend time with Jesus. Like I said, the answer is simple in that sense. It is. If we go right back to the very, very start of where we talked about, why did Peter have so much humility in sharing his account with Mark so intimately? Because he knew. Because he knew that he was loved, embraced, and known by Jesus. And he has no shame then. It doesn't matter what happened in the past. It doesn't matter sharing that horrific account of that night on all his multiple failures in such gory detail, in painstaking detail. Because Jesus had restored him. Jesus had said to him, do you love me? And Peter had answered, yes. And then we hear Peter goes on to lead one of the most faithful, amazing discipleship lives and, you know, transforms the world in that sense. And we're reaping the benefits of Peter's faithfulness. He was able to have such humility because he was known, loved by Jesus. And it's the same for us. We don't need to strive for the acceptance of others, even though we're so tempted to do that and we're all driven by that. We are accepted. We have it. Jesus has accepted us. He loves us. He knows us. He knows everything we've done. And yet he still loves us. And I guess, for me, this has been an amazing process, uh, pre uh, preparing for this sermon, because I've had to <laughs> spend time face-to-face -face with Jesus. And, and I, Steve rang me up a couple of weeks ago and asked me would I do this. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but it wasn't meant to be me. And, and I said yes, and I said yes, because I knew that I was in a place spiritually where I wanted to reconnect. I really did. And for me, I've had the pleasure of spending time face-to-face -face with Jesus in the last couple of weeks preparing for this. And I just... I can't tell you how amazing that's being to reconnect. And I just, I really, I just beg of you, I guess, to come face to face with Jesus and let him ask that question. Do you love me? It's a hard question, but if you can answer it, it's a beautiful place to be. So I really, that's where I just want to leave it for today. I invite you to come face to face with Jesus. Whatever it is, corner off time, quietness, worship music, whatever it is for you, and let him ask you that question. Do you love me?